This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. How can we make all of our AV systems accessible through our university API project, just like every other IT system? And I think one of the principles that we're trying to adhere to that uh, is making this possible is we we kind of refuse to support any technology does that, that does not have a network-based control layer. It actually mounts the Raspberry Pi and the PoE hat, all fit into that one package, which then clips into, if you will, a three-gang box or a four-gang box with an Ethernet cable running down into it that powers it and provides the, the network connectivity. And that's kind of the, the core compute power that's running in the room itself. And so it's no longer cost prohibitive in one of these active classrooms where we've got eight screens, 10 screens, whatever we've got in there, that each screen actually has its own dedicated touch panel. Security, we think, is actually a better story with this solution than it was before, because when you're dealing with a proprietary AV solution, you're limited to whatever they've thought through, right? Welcome, my name is Patrick Murray, and today's episode of Software Defined Survival will be a little bit different. We are not interviewing one person, we are kind of interviewing a project. And this is a project that took place or is ongoing at a university to change over from traditional AV control systems to using Raspberry Pis and the Raspberry Pi touchscreen and the development process involved in all of that. And joining me to discuss that are Daniel Wells, Director of AV Engineering, Brad Streeter, Chief Engineer, and Joe Blodgett, Primary Developer of the Open Source Software at Brigham Young University. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so I'll just address all of you um, at once and feel free to jump in with whoever thinks they could answer best. And... Uh, my first question is, is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? No, that, that kind of sums up the project itself uh, pretty, pretty cleanly. So where did the original idea come from? So uh, as a university, we've been um, really trying to promote inside of our center. Well, first off, the audiovisual group is part of the office of IT, the central office of IT for the university. And therefore, our uh, line management goes through the, the CIO. And the CIO okay. has really been trying to promote um, open standards, uh, web-based controls, APIs, RESTful web services, et cetera, in all of our IT systems across campus. And several years ago, uh, I, I come from the IT side of the house, and I was brought down to be a part of the AV group. And one of the, the challenges that we were given was, how can we make all of our AV systems accessible through our university API project, just like every other IT system we're trying to build. So that was a challenge that was given to us, uh, was, was basically around what kind of APIs can you provide us from the classroom specifically and AV systems in general. And so that's kind of what set us down this road was trying to explore how to do that. We, we, we played, experimented a little bit with trying to uh, make our existing vendor that we were using um, uh, put a layer on top of it, if you will, to make the systems exposed, uh, expose an external API layer. And that, it got pretty, uh, it was difficult to get a proprietary ecosystem to play nicely in an open world. 
Um, and that we they have we had a bunch of other side goals as well around automation, uh, improved uh, deployments, um, better monitoring. Uh, we wanted to play around with big data and see what kind of analytics we could get out of our systems. Uh, and based on that analytics, what kind of trend analysis and could we get AI helping us out with some decisions? So we had a lot of these big, broad goals uh, that the only it, it, we came quickly to the solution that the only way we can make this happen is to start building it from scratch. And our CIO was on board with letting us do that. The Raspberry Pi was a favorite uh, piece of hardware for many of us down here that we've been playing with for the better part of a decade in many ways, some of us. And so it was, uh, and they had a touch panel available that had been recently released. So we, we figured we'd start there and see where it took us. Excellent. Um, I think it's really interesting to note that the decision kind of came from the top. Uh, so the stakeholder said, we want your systems exposed like everything else we're used to on, on our IT network. Was there anything in particular that they were looking for or was it just a, a global sweep of everything that's on the network we want to be able to speak with? Or were there really any particular uh, statuses or reports or functionality that, that they were curious about? I think from the AV side, it was largely philosophical from that level. Um, okay. There is a, a, pro a project that I think got some interest uh, globally where we have a, a campus mobile app that is trying to incorporate a lot of the functionality of the university into it. And so that's one that was used early on as a justification for getting this sort of a thing is that we could build potentially the control of the classroom equipment into the mobile app. Um, and APIs obviously can help make that happen a lot more cleanly. Um, if you have them available, so. But I think uh, I think also the the intent is to expose anything that's available. Yeah. Uh, so that all of our systems, any any metric, any control point, uh, is is available via the API. That then gives us the option of determining which of those um, we make available to the to the end user. And and the philosophical aspect from our CEO was really. We don't know what our customers want to do, and for us to build interfaces uh, for them oftentimes uh, assumes things that maybe we shouldn't be assuming. And so giving our customers APIs and letting them determine what they want to do with our systems is a philosophical goal of his. And so he basically mandated in many ways that all of our APIs, all of our systems have APIs for that reason alone, and then we'll see where we go from there was kind of his stance in many ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you start, I mean, a database is a perfect example. You can't do analytics without collecting the data first and you have this chicken or the egg. What is it that I should be storing? Well, you don't really know what will be interesting until you start using these systems until some time goes on. So I could certainly appreciate that mindset. So once this decision was made, uh, you mentioned that you all had some experience with the Raspberry Pi. What were the first steps? I imagine you made some kind of proof of concept to start with. Can you describe those initial baby steps, if you will? Yeah, and I'll let maybe Joe talk a little bit more about this. But as, as we were first starting, uh, while we were working on a lot of the, the efforts to put that layer on top of our other system, we had a couple of students working for us that had some interest in taking this a little bit further. Joe was one of them at the time. He was one of the students. And we kind of just said, hey, why don't you guys start playing with this thing over here and see what you can come up with? And maybe you can talk a little bit, Joe, about that. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of a, an interesting problem that was handed to us where it was me and another student, and they brought us down, and they just kind of sat us down to me one day, and they said, how hard would it be to do this without our traditional vendor? Is, would it be possible? Go figure it out. 
And then they just kind of left us alone for like <laughs> five or six months while we <laughs> built something and it worked kind of, and we tore it down, we built something else and we tore it down, we built something else and we tore it down. And finally they realized that they were paying us just to have fun. So they put a deadline on us saying we have to have a, <laughs> have a demo by this date. And so we kind of pushed to have, a, it was a really simple thing. It was controlling a couple of Sony TVs, just changing input, turning them on, things like that from a really basic UI. And so we, we, you know, we got that put together. I think all together we spent probably four or five months from start time to that demo time. And why Sony? Huh? Why Sony? And the, the Sony TVs, one of those was that the Sony TVs have a really nice web API, you know, RESTful API on them. And so it made it really nice and easy for us to, to talk to them. Um, went through several iterations of it and then demoed it for the, it's like the, they call it the, it's the leadership council here in the Office of Information Technology. They liked it a lot and kind of said, great, go ahead with it and make, make it actually work, which was, which was really cool. And we've yeah. been sprinting ever since, and right? we've been pushing ever since <laughs> that day to make it actually work. So. so what does that process look like? Once you've seen it working, you had this touch panel, you were turning a TV on, off, on and off. The proof of concept was there. And you mentioned the word sprint, which maybe not everybody here is familiar with. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that development process, how you define goals, set metrics, and really make sure you stay on track and are always moving forward. So I think taking it from where Joe just left the story off, um, we kind of did things a little bit backwards. You know, we, we got bit a little bit by the, the, the high fidelity prototype problem that a lot of developers run into where we had a, a thing that looked really, it looked pretty good at the time and it, it did some very basic things. And I, I think, uh, our upper line management figured it was more complete than it really was and, and gave us a deadline to start putting it out on campus, actually. And we picked a, a building that was being uh, built, uh, a new uh, addition to a building, and, and they gave us the mandate that that building was going to have this product in it. Uh, what do we need to do to get there? And so we started scrambling at that point to, to kind of really hash out what pieces needed to be done in order for this to be, you know, quote unquote, finished. Right to be a productized thing, and and uh, yeah, so we started working with the business teams to kind of gather the needs of the building. What were the what was the bare minimum that we needed in this product in order to meet the needs, and then just started scrambling. At that point, we hadn't even completed a mounting solution for the Raspberry Pi uh, touchscreen, so we started scrambling a little bit of a prototyping effort there. So uh, Brad's team, he's got several different skill sets within his engineering group, and so we had some of his. Uh, team working on, we actually 3D uh, modeled uh, and prototyped a, um, a mount for this because we couldn't find anything. Nobody had made a, a, a decent flush mount wall mount, if you will, for the Raspberry Pi touchscreen. So we modeled one. We've got some 3D printers. We were printing them up. We tested them out. And once we decided we liked that, then we started working with some local aluminum manufacturers. And all this was in a compressed time cycle trying to make, meet this deadline of this building. And then all the while, Joe was starting to scramble to really make sure this product was solid on the back end and was going to work reliably, was going to work in the distributed fashion that we wanted it to. And uh, yeah. So, so one of the things that's, I, I guess is interesting is that that initial demo, it was, it was really basic. Again, we were talking directly to the TV and, you know, we kind of had a bunch of hard coded commands and that was, what, that was how it was going to work. And we realized that, we had to have something that was a little more general that could handle 
not only one kind of TV, but could handle potentially any TV that was API controlled, or any projector, or any video switch, or any anything. And so a lot of that was, was taking it back and, and trying to figure out how to make a generalized backend. Um, and that took up some time, but in all honesty, the actual control guts of the system, they were done fairly soon in the process. Um, that demo was in, in October. I want to say that the guts of the control system were done probably by January. And I don't think we've really made major modifications to them since. Yeah. It's been, since then, it's been a lot of the things that make an enterprise system an enterprise system. So the monitoring and the deployments and, you know, the supportability of it. And that's, we're still kind of in that today in the configuration of it. And that was really what was the big push from there. And, and that's, yeah. in a large part, still what we're kind of doing. And, and I think one of the principles that we're trying to adhere to that uh, is making this possible is we... We kind of refuse to support any technology does that, that does not have a network-based control layer, um, preferably a RESTful control layer. Um, there's a lot of proprietary protocols out there that are packetized on the TCP layer, which we can work with. We've, we've got a lot of those in the system right now, but we're trying to, part of our efforts with this open source initiative a little bit is to raise an awareness uh, to vendors out there on the value of making a nice, clean, restful interface is to users like us out there. All right. So we covered, uh, you mentioned a few things that I'd like to circle back on. Of course, open source, we're going to come back to that. The uh, software design, getting that generalized backend. But before we get there, can you paint a picture for what the hardware looks like? You, you mentioned there were some issues or there was no mounting solution available. So what are, what are the components that are involved in, in this solution? Um, so one thing before we jump into this particular solution is to keep in mind that the, the software suite we've written is not fundamentally tied to the Raspberry Pi. It runs and it can run anywhere. We actually have an instance of it in AWS that allows us to do remote control. So the Pi is a very nice, you know, a device that sits in the room that is consumer, you know, consumer available, you can get off the shelf and it looks nice and it works well. But the system, the control system itself, is not fundamentally tied to the Pi. With that said, um, the usual system we have that, you know, the control system goes in a room, you have just a Pi, you have, we do PoE, so we have a PoE hat we put on it, just the regular seven-inch touchscreen, and then there's a, I how to describe the mounting brackets. It's basically like a little thing that sits behind the Pi that offsets it from the wall by about an inch, made out of anodized aluminum, it's got some you know, airflow vents in there and it, it looks really nice. It, it's designed where we put a bracket basically on the front side of a two, a three or four gang electrical box. Um, and then the, then the actual housing that the, the pie screen uh, connects into on the back of the pie screen, the mount, it, uh, it actually mounts the Raspberry Pi and the POE hat all fit into that one package, which then clips into, if you will, a three-gang box or a four-gang box with an Ethernet cable running down into it that powers it and provides the, the network connectivity. And that's kind of the, the core compute power that's running in the room itself. Excellent. Just for uh, those not familiar with the Raspberry Pi, uh, a hat is basically another circuit board that you could kind of clip right onto. There's GPIO pins on the Raspberry Pi, and you could kind of put another component right on there and it's called a hat. <laughs> so, so this Raspberry Pi touch panel um, solution just has one cat cable going to it for network and power, correct? Correct. And how many of these do you have deployed? 
Uh, we're currently at a little over 200. Is that where we're at? About 238 as of last night. Okay, so roughly around 240 of them deployed across campus right now. They're, they're kind of the core component of, of our efforts of doing what we're calling an active classroom. It's a concept within education for kind of changing the way professors teach. Um, and it, it's involved. And so trying to put technology in an active classroom, there's a concept of huddle spaces and breakout spaces. And so trying to put this technology was really valuable to us because the touch screens and the pies are relatively inexpensive to other touch panel solutions. And so it's no longer cost prohibitive in one of these active classrooms where we've got eight screens, 10 screens, whatever we've got in there, that each screen actually has its own dedicated touch panel to enable the technology the way we want. So that's part of the reason why the number's grown. We've got quite a few of those going out there, but I'd say probably only 40 of those are some of the active classrooms and the other 200 are kind of standalone systems spread across different rooms and camp across campus. So that sounds like a really good sample set. What kind of issues have you had? Are there heat <laughs> issues or anything that you would expect? So the main, the main issue we've had with the Raspberry Pi has been that there's no onboard member storage. It's, it's a flash card or an SD card that's in there. Um, as a result, SD cards wear out. Uh, and OSs are, are not kind by way of how many writes they do. <laughs> so we've had an issue where we had kind of the first wave of the SD cards. We went with kind of a, a mid-grade, mid-to-lower-grade SD card kind of for cost reasons. Those all had a, I don't know if it's a widespread failures, but they all started <laughs> failing at about the same time, which makes sense because we put them in at about the same time. <laughs> um, so we had an having to replace those. We're trying to mitigate that through a few different ways, kind of controlling how much logging we do, making parts of the OS read-only that we can, as well as using a bigger and a nicer card. Yeah, so using a larger capacity uh, SD card kind of helps with that read-write, that program erase cycle. And then we've also gone with uh, what they call high endurance cards, and that seems to have helped a little bit as well that are more intended for uh, higher I.O. applications. I mean, the nature of a card means you're going to have to replace it every, you know, three to five years. So in the, in the, in the context of, of cost, you know, where the, the pie in and of itself was, was a motivation from a cost perspective, you know, we're seeing that having to buy the more expensive cards has kind of offset that a little bit but still is considerably less than any of the other options that we've come across. Yeah, we've gone from a $15 card to a $20 card. <laughs> yeah, so it's per system, right? So it's still relatively inexpensive, yeah. comparatively speaking. Yeah. But what other problems? Those, right. those were one problem. That's, that's SD really cards. been the big hardware issue. I don't know if we've had any hardware problems yeah. other than because it's, a, it's kind of made for makers, right? It's easy to miss configure it like put you know put jumpers in the wrong place or forget to put a lead in the right place or attach a hat wrong and i think those are really the only things we've had is just times where you know somebody doesn't connect the power jumper to the right pin and as a result the screen doesn't turn on but as soon as you correct the jumper it works and, and the sd cards i don't i can't think and of there's, the also, there's also hardware a little issues. bit of heat issue so that was, we, uh, did, we did with we, we we have another application that that we're using the same hardware solution for and that was our scheduling panels we actually put kind of room schedulers on the outside of conference rooms and whatnot. And we've been experimenting with using the same. We had some heat issues with those. It was a different technology. We've worked through a lot of that. So obviously uh, the way you write your code is going to impact heat significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and the way we've written the code on the AV control side uh, from day one, we've been very <coughs> conscientious around, around CPU cycles to keep the heat down. We've cleaned up the, uh, the code significantly on the, 
scheduling panels so we don't have so many. And the fact that it's an aluminum mount helps with that dissipation. It's got some some cooling vents on the side. We we don't see. I mean, what we uh, stick it around the, the the low 50s, high 40s yeah. on Cent average centigrade. centigrades. Um, on we, most of our most of these things out there right now, we actually designed the mount when it was first designed. It had a fan mount in it to put a little, you know, a little twenty-five millimeter fan in there. Uh, but we found that it really wasn't necessary. It didn't actually yeah. do much in addition to heat sinks. So it added a little noise to the room, and the noise wasn't worth the benefit. So, so we actually pulled those out because heat wasn't an issue. And you were able to be aware and make those kind of decisions because you were collecting that data, correct? Yes. Right. So the Raspberry Pi has an access to go and see what the processor temperature and it has a little temperature sensor in there. So you can gather that information on a, an automated basis. Go ahead. I was just going to say along the, the lines of, of metrics and data collection, we, we have a pretty aggressive policy that just about anything we can measure and track and is being sent out to an ELK cluster, Elastic Stack. Uh, which is a big data, open source, big data solution that we have kind of as our standard here on campus. Okay, so we covered a bunch of stuff. I want to go back to the original question, what kind of challenges? It sounded um, that the biggest challenges will be discovered in deployment. So if things aren't hooked up properly, you'll have some issues with the SD card. SD technology has a limited number of writes, uh, so it doesn't matter where that SD card is deployed. Um, it will need to be replaced every few years, so you'll need to plan for that. You mentioned how the software can affect the longevity and the performance of the hardware. I think that's something interesting that we could dig into a little bit. For example, uh, I've my, my team here created an image for the Raspberry Pi that's completely in read-only mode, so there are no writes. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that scheduling panel and those issues there where it was heating up due to the software and, and about your open source solution and maybe even the decision why to make it all open source. A lot there. Um, yeah, <laughs> we can break it up. All right, that last one cut off. We'll do the open source in the next question. So I think open source uh, it, it just fits well with the philosophy of our team in general. I think uh, um, I've been a big fan of open source for the better part of my life, and um, as such, as we're building teams and and kind of. Uh, making uh, bring bringing in resources to the organization. We we try to bring in people that think the same way we do in some ways. And so I think just in general, the open source option for us just made sense. And as long as our upper management was okay with it, that's the way we're going to go every time. Um, but at the same time, uh, w with resources being limited, that's part of the reason we like open source. If we can get this to the point where others are interested in, where we have people contributing, you know, the, the driver database layer, which is a, a microservice layer where, where we write a microservice for each type of hardware, you know, it, it'd be great if at some point we've got a lot of contribution of somebody writing a Panasonic line and somebody writing a Sony line and somebody writing... A, Epson line of control and, and, and not having to do that all in-house. We're obviously focusing on the hardware that we care about, um, but it opens the doors and, and, and for everybody to be better when, when you build with an open source model. Uh, the other thing, the other reason too, is there's just a lot of great solutions out there already that are in the open source world. Um, and they've been vetted and tried and, and used. And um, when you're working in a Linux environment, there are a, a lot of amazing tools out there for management, for deployment, for locking things down, for security. Um, and so it just made sense to have, you know, access to all this tools 
relative for you know free um out there uh and so yeah open source just kind of where we gravitate toward every time we can gravitate toward every time we can yeah the other the other thing to consider is that uh the the av manufacturers in general are behind in this kind of technology <clears throat> so this is an opportunity for us to kind of evangelize the the value and the benefits of <clears throat> this type of control and get you know more people than just byu um influencing the manufacturers to to go out and develop apis for their for their hardware yeah and philosophically for me anytime we can legitimize the value the business value of open source our software feels like a win to me so absolutely uh i'm all on board with with all of that <laughs> i do see some challenges in it though um you mentioned device drivers so that's going to be a big problem for everyone and it could be a main reason why you might pick a traditional control system because of all the device drivers that are available right can you imagine a way to create some kind of repository without choosing a platform <laughs> when you say creating a repository you mean a repository of device drivers or what yes i mean and, and then when you say without choosing a platform, you mean without choosing like the Raspberry Pi versus the Epson or what, what do you mean? Right. So, so, so one solution is going to be based on .NET. Another one's going to be on Node.js. Another one might be written in Golang, like uh, your solution. And that's, it's a big enough problem to deal with device drivers themselves, but to develop them for all of these different platforms to run on. I think in our opinion, that's where, where standardization comes into play. Um, right now, the only reason we need device driver layer is because we have such disparate control uh, interfaces out there right now. And if we, you know, uh, things like uh, Aurora is doing with the Reacts platform, trying to come up with a standardized way for vendors to expose the functionality of their devices out to everyone is the only way that that problem is going to be solved. Um, for us, in the meantime, right, you know, uh, we're trying to do something similar with um, standardize the interface for the microservices, for example, that um, we're creating. You know, we're doing a microservice per uh, protocol or per hardware type, and we have a standardized interface on the way that that microservice exposes the functionality to our system. And so if you build out that, it's, it's a standard, if you will, there's no reason why somebody else's control solution can't piggyback off that same standard and throw those microservices up in their environment and use whatever business layer logic you, you they want, if you will, and, and that same code that people have written around uh, each of the hardware types to control that software in their, or the hardware in their systems. The, the concerns about language and platform as far as programming goes, uh, I, I think the fact that we use HTTP as our communication layer between the microservices abstracts a lot of that away. Mm -hmm. And then dockerization or containerization really fixes kind of the other half of it where you can build a Docker container that is your, you know, your driver microservice, if you will. And it, again, if it exposes it over, even if it's not a standard API, as long as it's, it's a configurable piece and it meets a few basic requirements, right. you just run that Docker container on whatever host you're doing it on. In our case, it would be a Raspberry Pi. And you say it's, you know, running on this HTTP port and here's how you talk to that driver microservice and it's, you know, somewhat abstracted. Yeah. And then the way we've constructed that was that generalized layer of the AV API 
thing, it will do all that translation for you and call out over HTTP to that microservice. So as far as it being a, a language choosing C Sharp or, or .NET over Go over PHP over Node, it, it's kind of, yeah. hopefully we've, we've made that a non-issue. The interface is the same regardless of the technology you use to write it, as long as we're doing at this RESTful API layer. Excellent. Th thanks for that insight. I really appreciate that because obviously device drivers are a huge part of this puzzle. And yeah, I think uh, standardization will play a role in solving that. And this idea of microservices is something I'm going to dig into a bit more as soon as I get off this call. <laughs> but until then, how about the question on everyone's mind, security? That's what kind of issues, concerns, uh, yeah, prevention how, how do you manage and deploy these things to make sure that they're secure? So first upfront, you're only as secure as the weakest link in your chain. And as of right now, the weakest link is almost always the devices themselves. So that's the manufacturer, you know, the, the projectors, for example, they communicate over a raw TCP socket. So even if, you know, I put a password in, that's still being transmitted over the network over in plain text. So until yeah. some of those things get fixed, the system just isn't isn't going to be as secure as it should be. Uh, as far as the Raspberry Pis themselves go, the nice news is that it's just a Linux server. So we use uh, SaltStack. It's a kind of an Ansible chef. It's an open source management system for Linux servers. And so it's it's really is very simple to say you know I want this system to be locked down by way of its IP ports, and I want to make sure that I rotate my password on a regular basis, um, and things like that. So if you trust your Linux servers to be secured in a way to secure, I don't know, your bank records or your grades or whatever, you can basically lock down the Raspberry Pi using the same best practices, methodologies that exist for yeah. your traditional Linux servers. And, and that's one of the, re the other reasons why uh, we're excited about this. Security, we think, is actually a better story with this solution than it was before because when you're dealing with a proprietary AV solution, you're limited to whatever they've thought through, right? Um, and in today's world, we're still finding ourselves largely in telnet uh, space in a lot of our AV ecosystems, which uh, anyone who's delved into the security side of things knows that telnet is very dated when it comes to its, its security features. <laughs> it's a mild way to put that, I guess. Um, so, yeah, as Joe was saying, um, we have, once again, going back to the open source world, right? Um, Linux is used in some of the most secure data centers in the world. Uh, and there are a lot of great tools around securing it. And the salt stack that we've chosen, it's a policy-based thing. So you define what your security looks like, and every device you bring in gets that policy and configures itself uh, to adhere to it, right? Uh, which is one of the great uh, things uh, about using an open source product like Linux as the core OS for the system. Um, beyond, beyond that, for the API itself, we use HTTPS and just kind of standard Everything that we have secured, we've tied into our, it's a, it's a SAML-based, it's CAS token authorization, and we use JSON Web Tokens for authorization, ongoing session management. But that's, you know, right. those are our choices, but because we're using standards, we can use really any of the same things you do to secure any other web server. Yeah, and, and, and we're using modern open open standards. Uh, we grow with as they grow. So, you know, as, as they change and support newer encryption algorithms because, you know, SHA got hacked or, you know, whatever, and they move to the newer encryption algorithm, we get it. It comes along with the new packages that come down and we can use the newer encryption. 
things like SSH are built in by default, so we've got secure uh, shell access to all these devices across the board, and there's just a lot of benefits that you can uh, take advantage of going down this road. Excellent. I think the big takeaways there are that nothing is really secure out of the box. It's more <laughs> a matter of configuration, and uh, it's yes. important to think about security and how you're going to, to manage these things. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier about the ELK stack. Can you dig a little deeper into that, what that means, what these letters ELK mean, and uh, how you're using it in an AV sense? So ELK stands for Elasticsearch Log Stash and Kibana. It's, a, it's an open source big data engine based on the Lucene sharding engine. Um, basically, it's, it's, it's a big data ingestion, searching, and then visualization pieces. Um, so anything that happens on any of our devices, every time somebody presses a button, every time it turns on, every time it turns off, every five minutes we do a basic status check, uh, it generates a, an event and it pushes that event up into this Elasticsearch cluster. And Elasticsearch has a very powerful query language with which you can you know, do all sorts of cross uh, you know, data collation and searching and filtering and whatnot. Uh, we use that for a lot of our monitoring pieces. We actually generate alerts based on presence or lack of presence of certain events. We use it for keeping track of the state of the rooms. Um, you know, this room is on, its volume is set to 73. Uh, we also use it for, you know, validating some of our assumptions. So one of the success stories that happened before I got down here actually with, with Brad Daniel and, and our managing director was they started gathering metrics out of our existing system um, and we had previously been putting a Blu-ray player in every room. Uh, the metrics kind of supported that wasn't being used as much as we had thought it was. And as a result, uh, we've kind of stopped doing that a little bit. And so we, it allows us to do things like that where we can, you know, we have some assumptions that we make and the data lets us either prove those or, you know, disprove them in some cases. So it's for the next database thing. decisions. <laughs> They have a direct effect on, on the bottom line, right? And uh, it takes all the discussion out of the decision <laughs> because um, sometimes it's just a feeling. I think I need a Blu-ray player. Right. And now you know. Right. right. Any, any final thoughts? No. I mean, the only, uh, if, if people are interested in, in learning a little bit more about it, we're, we, we try to make ourselves available to answer questions and to, to, for people who are interested. We've got an email address they can reach out to us at uh, avapi. av-api. av-api at byu.edu. Yeah, we're just having a good time over here and we don't mind talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody's interested in looking at the code, the organization name in GitHub is BYU. O-I-T-A-V, um, no spaces, no dashes, just one word. So you can go find that organization on GitHub and, and take a look through what we've done. Now that you brought that up, really quickly, what, what would that process look like? I have a Raspberry Pi on my desk. I'm looking at the, the GitHub repository. What, what are the steps to make this happen? If I'm, if I'm a Crestron AMX Extron programmer and I don't know much about this modern programming stuff, do I have a chance? So... Um, as Daniel said at the beginning, we haven't done a great job of packaging this up. <laughs> so I could, we could walk through all the steps. It actually isn't that complicated. Right. I mean, it, it is slightly, but really what it is, we have an image we build and we maintain that does, it kind of, it bootstraps all of our provisioning things. So it sets up automatically, but it also has all the pieces on it fundamentally you need to run the system. So you can download that, that's on GitHub. And then really there's a, there's an example Docker compose file. 
Uh, what Docker Compose is, it's a syntax and a tool for downloading and running a bunch of different Docker containers at a time. So you'd have to, there's an example Docker Compose file that'll get you all your basic stuff you need up and running. Um, so I'd go do that, you start running the containers, um, and then you have to, you know, configure your whatever device you're controlling in such a way that it has the right passwords and things. And then there is a slight amount of configuration in that database you'd have to do. That schema is, I don't know if we have great documentation about it, but <laughs> if somebody is interested in this, please do reach out and we'd be happy to, you know, detail exactly what you'd have to do and, and, and get you set up. So it, I would imagine that, you know, if, if you're trying to get a really basic system set up and you contact us, we could probably work it, work it with you through to get it set up in less than a day for sure, probably a couple hours if you're interested in just a basic system. But I think that's, I think that's one of our goals as an organization is, is, to, make, is to make the code more consumable uh, to the community. Uh, we've done a lot of, of customization that, that isn't really uh, easy for everyone to understand. And so uh, ongoing, I think we'll see improvements in terms of how that code is, is available and consumable for, for those that maybe don't have the, the expertise of someone like Joe. And, and going through the process of helping someone set this up in their ecosystem and hearing the questions and problems they run into will only help us make this more consumable. So, <clears throat> so if anybody's interested, please, please reach out. We're, <laughs> we've helped. I, I, there's one other organization that we're kind of in the process right now of helping them get a test unit set up, uh, but we'd, lo we'd love to help anybody who's interested. So. Excellent. I love the attitude of uh, generosity and helpfulness. And yeah, I sense a little bit of passion for this new approach to things. It is exciting and it can be intimidating. I think those first few steps, you hear a lot of words, a lot of acronyms flying around, but um, getting to that first, I touch a button and the light goes on. Once that happens, uh, I think the motivation comes by its own. So that's why I'm always looking for those initial steps. How do I make something happen? Anything else? Any uh, personal information you'd like to give out? You've given some contact info. Anything else you'd like to mention? I think I think from the perspective of an AV engineer, uh, so I didn't grow up in the in the IT world. Um, it's it's doable. <laughs> uh, so don't don't fear the 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 language and the the acronyms and. <laughs> And everything it, it takes a little bit of time but it's it's learnable and it's doable and it's exciting anything else you'd like to mention well one last thing for there there's a group of uh, university uh, media people that uh, called ccumc they have a conference every year this year ccumc is being held at a, a sister university up the up, up the road from us a little bit uh, it's one of the state universities in the area uh, university of utah and we're less than a hour away from where CCMC is going to be held. So anybody attending that that was interested in, in, in visiting with us and maybe possibly seeing what we're doing, we're, we're not too far away. So and we'll, we'll also be presenting at the conference. That's true. We do. We are doing a presentation at the conference as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, Join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer, whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, 
all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just, you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.